Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the project on global economic liberty. Russia has played a pivotal role in world affairs for centuries, and the post-communist era it has continued to do so. And the transition from socialism to the market has in many ways followed past Russian patterns. It has been unpredictable, oftentimes non-transparent, volatile, and rough, and it has led to misjudgments and miscalculations on the part of policymakers and investors in Russia and outside of Russia throughout uh, this period. The course of events in Russia continues to exert a disproportionately large influence on international relations. Those of us who favor democratic capitalism and care about Russia watch uh, with concern how high oil prices there have at once boosted the country's growth and led to the increasing centralization of decision-making in politics and in economics. Policymakers in the West are currently trying to decide what to make of these developments and their manifestations abroad. For example, the, the cutoff of gas to the Ukraine and to Europe and the decision to meet with leaders of Hamas. Much is at stake, cooperation in the war on terror, membership of the, in the WTO, and cooperation within the G8 stability in the Middle East, the Caucasus, Central Asia, and much of Eastern Europe, and of course, the fate of Russians themselves, whether the country will become more prosperous or not. As has been the case so long in Russia, interpreting uh, these events inside of Russia is no easy task, and so I'm very pleased uh, to have with us today Andrei Ilarionov. Andrei has been a friend and a colleague for at least 10 years, during which we've had uh, much fruitful cooperation between uh, him, his institute, and the Cato Institute. After the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, he was involved in the early transition team. And from 1993 to 94, he was an advisor to the Prime Minister Chernomyrdin, a position from which he resigned in protest of the policies that were being followed then. In 1998, <clears throat> he correctly predicted the crash of the Russian ruble at a time when other market liberal economists and the IMF itself was saying that this uh, would not happen. From 2000 to 2005, December of 2005, Andrei Larionov was the chief economic advisor to President Putin, a position from which he uh, advanced liberal economic policies, especially uh, in the early years, and perhaps more significantly, a position from which he has courageously uh, denounced some of the uh, direction and policy that the country had uh, uh, been taking, and using that position of uh, influence to, to really catalog uh, a liberal critique of the direction that uh, Russia uh, has been taking. Throughout this whole time, and currently, he is the head of the Institute of Economic Analysis, a think tank in Moscow. At the Cato Institute, uh, incidentally, we have had uh, a long relationship with his institute. Uh, in 2004, the Cato Institute and the Institute of Economic Analysis organized a major conference in Moscow and in St. Petersburg of several days where we brought in the leading market liberals of the world to to make the case for a liberal agenda, not just for Russia, for, but also for transition in developing countries. Cato Institute, in fact, has had a long interest in Russia. In 1990 and 1991, Cato held uh, 
market-oriented uh, conferences in Moscow, making the Cato Institute the first uh, think tank to hold such a, an event in the Soviet Union, uh, first think tank uh, from the West. And uh, more recently, I would announce that uh, the Cato Institute now has a website in Russian, www.cato.ru, where you will see original pieces in Russian and uh, translated pieces both on public policy issues and classical liberal texts. Without any further ado, please help me welcome Andrei Larinov. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a real pleasure and special privilege for me uh, to be here uh, at the Cato Institute and to have a chance uh, to share with uh, uh, this distinguished audience uh, some uh, of my thoughts on the current developments uh, in Russian economic and political affairs. Um, we uh, we've been in a very great uh, cooperation with the Cato Institute for uh, more than 10 years, as Jan Vasquez has just said. Uh, we have been engaged in many interesting and productive projects. This cooperation was very, very valuable for us, and it is a very great uh, privilege to work with people uh, at the Cato Institute who have been for many years champions of freedom uh, here in the United States as well as around the world. And we're very good and very strong supporters of freedom movements uh, in many countries, including Russia. Two years ago, as it has been mentioned, uh, in Moscow and in St. Petersburg in April 2004, we have had a major international conference uh, on the topic of liberal agenda for the 21st century where we try to discuss and outline the most important issues that can be, uh, can be serious problems um, in our work, in the work of all those who are trying to increase freedom, political freedom and economic freedom in many countries of the world. That time, even though we have detected number of very worrying trends uh, in development in Russia. We have not been able to discuss the issue that I consider one of the greatest and gravest threats to freedom in Russia and not only in Russia. This threat is called rise of corporatist state. And this is a topic of uh, my talk today. It is not a very enjoyable story. This is a sad story because story about fall and degradation of freedom is a sad story. It is a sad story because it happens in my own country, in Russia. And it is also and especially sad because great part of the story has happened when I personally was in the administration and that is why whatever can be said today or any time else, I do also share some responsibility for what is what's going and is going in the country at the moment. Nevertheless, I think it is very, very important 
that uh, we would have a clear picture, as clear as possible, what is going on in country. I used for epigraph of this uh, uh, for this talk uh, two citations. One is from Russian people. If you are not behind bars yet, it is not your merit. It means the system does not work properly. And this citation that actually it's not has been born recently. It is a rather old wisdom, but uh, over the last few years it became uh, rather popular. And the other from Russian government documents, our system must work better. Um, let me start from some historical analogies. They are, as, usu as usual, rather subjective, never perfect, but provide valuable historical perspective to look upon today's situation and possible future developments. On morning, December 7th, 1941, the United States of America has been attacked by the outside enemy. Almost 60 years later, on the morning, September 11th, the United States of America has been attacked by outside enemy. In that war that has followed the attack in 1941, the United States of America has developed relations and established, uh, found very important ally in that fight, Russia. All that time it was called Soviet Union. Sixty years later, in the other war, the United States of America has found very important ally against the common enemy and fought that enemy together with that new ally, means Russia. After being in that war for some time in mid-40s and after successful, successfully defeated some of the enemies, the United States of America and some other allies gradually realized that the objectives that are persuaded by the U.S. and the former Soviet Union are not the same, and in many important directions are quite different, and in very important directions are opposite ones. Something similar is in the process 60 years later. In 1945-1946, many areas of conflicts and disagreements between the United States of America and the former Soviet Union happened to be in southwestern Europe, in the Middle East, in the, in the Black Sea Basin, in Greece, in Turkey, in Iran. Sixty years later, number of serious conflicts and disagreements between the United States of America and Russia happened to be in southeastern, uh, sorry, it was southeastern Europe, uh, in Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia, Iran, Middle East. In 1946, uh, Soviet authorities have proposed to Iranian governments 
the offer to establish a joint venture in exploration of oil fields in Iran that leads to find out later for Soviets that they have been smartly cheated by Iranian colleagues because it happened slightly later so we did not arrive uh, to the 60th anniversary of this uh, event now. But what we know certainly that on March 5th, 1946, almost exactly 60 years ago, on an invitation of the President Truman, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Winston Churchill, went to university town in state of Missouri, Fulton, and has delivered his famous Fulton speech concerning reconsidering relations between the United States of America and Russia. We can use this historical analogy, which is, once again, is not perfect and rather subjective, to look upon what is going today. What is important that has preceded the Churchill speech in 1946 was the cable sent by then Judge Affairs of the United States of America in Moscow, George, George Kennan, back to State Department. That cable became very well known and became even famous among historians under the title The Long Telegram. That long telegram had 8,000 words. We will not try to repeat the experience of George Kennan, and especially we don't know yet whether William Burns the ambassador of the United States in Moscow today has ever sent either his long telegram or a bunch of uh, shorter cables back to Washington. And maybe it is not necessary, because today we actually can compile the long telegram of today from hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of reports of journalists, of analysts, on researchers, of people who are visiting in Russia, who visiting Russia and who live in Russia about what is going on today. So let's have a look at, a on a short and a breach version of the year 2006 long telegram. Here I would try as short as possible to touch several points like the periods in recent Russian history, Russian authorities' economic policy, Russian authorities' domestic policy, Russian authorities' foreign policy. The question which is very often raised in many circles, is there a Russian economic miracle around? And if it is, who is in charge for it? Russia's corporate state and Russia as a member of G8. We'll try to find out which G8. Let's start with the periods in recent six years history of the Russian authorities' policies. To my limited knowledge and understanding, I do see at least four clear periods in the Russian government's policy. First, from January 2000 to July 2003, 
I would say to June and I, no, year 2003, that I would call storm and drunk period. Period during which quite a lot of pretty good and relatively good legislation has been implemented on the economic area, but during the which we did see some deterioration in political freedoms. The second period, July year 2003 to November year 2004, that I can call as period of questions. Period during which there was no good economic legislation whatsoever, and it was the beginning of a very clear attack on one of the best companies in Russia, Yukos, and uh, its owners. That time, many people in Russia, as well as outside Russia, keep asking everybody and themselves, and certainly Russian authorities, the same question. What does it mean? Is it true? Should we believe it? Or it will change? Or is it just a great mistake that will be corrected just within days? In the worst case, a week. Nevertheless, they have not received any convincing answers. And that is why arrived the next period, from December 2004 to November 2005, periods that I can call period of answers. Those answers were not delivered by Russian authorities in words. They were delivered in deeds. And those deeds were very clear, uh, clear and very convincing. And after receiving those answers, there was no more questions, at least big questions, what is going on in the country. And the last period looks like started last December that I can call no debate period, period in which questions are not allowed even among uh, the core of the administration. There is no better way to understand the watershed between those periods of 1990s and even earlier, uh, earlier uh, year 2000s until mid-year 2003 and after that, rather than to look into the questions that have been raised by people, different people, and certainly by business people in Russia. Before mid-year 2003, the most popular question was, what will be the exchange rate of ruble tomorrow, day after tomorrow, in a week, in a month, by the end of the year? Since mid-year 2003, and especially in the last two years, another question became very, very popular. Today, nobody asks about what will be, what will be the value of the ruble. Now the question is different. Is it not too late to leave the country? Should I leave Russia by the end of the year, in a month, in a week, day after tomorrow, tomorrow, right now? On the way here, uh, some people on a plane uh, recognized me, looks like business people, reached me, uh, said some words about what is going on, and after that, looking at me, I said, uh, you're living, we understand correctly. 
how can we describe what is going on? What kind of diagnosis we can provide for the current policies of the Russian government? I'd like to offer for your attention the very special medical treatment that I digged out, which is called, and you can read it here, Darwensazimus disease. I understand the audience know this uh, disease. Maybe not everybody, but I have to confess that it is very rare, a very dangerous, very complex, and very contagious disease. This disease consists of, this, of five diseases. Dutch disease, Argentina, Venezuelan, Saudi, and Zimbabwean. Let's look, first of all, on a combination of three diseases, Dutch, Argentina, and Venezuelan, that can be used best for description of the current economic policies. Dutch disease is sustaining high rate of inflation and national currency real appreciation, leading to undesirable, from the point of view of authorities or some other observers, structural changes and budget profligacy. High oil prices led to a sharp increase in the inflow of financial resources into Russia, to sustaining high money supply growth rate that never fell lower than 30% annually, to sustaining high inflation rate that is occurring at double-digit level for all these years and in last year uh, demonstrate tendency to rise, to fast real appreciation of ruble exchange rate, to sharp increase in the energy sector role in the Russian economy from roughly 10% to now close to quarter of GDP, and to a relative decline of non-oil sector's share in industrial output. These Dutch disease led to a very strong temptation among authorities to undertake the so-called industrial policy to correct undesirable structural changes that we can use for description the term Argentinian disease. The beginning of industrial policy in Russia from year 2002 to year 2004 included increasing taxation of oil companies, increasing government expenditures, especially government investments, setting up different government-regulated transport and energy tariffs for different sectors, industries, and companies, further differentiation of input duties, now uh, about 10,000 different rates, introduction of input quotas that Russia never had in the previous 15 years. Among budget items, the, mo the fastest growing happened to be expenditure on military and, pol and police, as well as on administration. As a result, the number of bureaucrats and their share in total employment have, drastic have drastically expanded. The rise in government expenditures has also led to increase in non-market employment, employment in budget sector and in sector of so-called state-regulated monopolies, mistaken mistakenly called natural monopolies that are certainly unnatural. Therefore, reducing employment in market sector, in the sector that is producing 
not distributing and not consuming value added. While economic activities in processing industries sharply slowed down, you can see on the left hand the growth rates in processing industries in year 2003, year 2004, and year 2005. The expenditures on government administration, national defense, and social security, which is certainly not privatized, but it is government, social security, skyrocketed. And you can see it on the right-hand side. Implementation of industrial policy led to fall in growth, both on, in oil industry as well as in manufacturing. Even the idea of industrial policy was redistribution of resources from raw material sector in favor of manufacturing, especially in favor of machine building to accelerate growth in machine building. And actually, what we've got, we've got something different, but strongly, strictly according to the economic textbooks. It led to notable slowdown in overall industrial growth. Industrial policy led to declining growth rates in other sectors, whether it is all GDP or industry or investment or transportation or volume of exports or whatever. So finally, dreams of adherence of industrial policy have been implemented. Arrival of industrial policy in Russia has already led to fall industrial output growth rate by 50%. But it's not the final story. It's not the end in the story of industrial policy. Uh, Minister of Economic Development in Russia, along with colleagues, has put forward uh, new ideas for development policy last year and this year. Among them, differentiation of taxation for different companies, destruction of oil stabilization fund, expanding of oil and creation of new state financial development institutes, like Russian Bank of Development, creation of government investment fund, creation of government venture funds, creation of special economic zones, granting taxation privileges to different municipalities, adoptions of the so-called development programs for different industrial sectors, introduction of limitations to foreign ownership in the so-called strategic companies and sectors. Just yesterday, the parliament has voted for establishment of limitations and prohibition of foreign investment in 39 industries and sectors. Adoption of an innovation and technology development programs, even program for government support in design. And last quotation is from officials of the respectful ministry. Actually, we have many more ideas. <laughs> but it's also not the end of the story, because here is another stage, Venezuelan disease, which is nationalization and quasi-nationalization of private assets in oil, gas, transportation, construction, automobile industry, aviation. There was almost no week in the country when new legislation or new information has not been put forward in nationalization or quasi-nationalization of assets in one sector or the other. One of the most the very well-known cases of nationalization is nationalization and in oil industry and destruction of one of the best uh, Russian companies, Yukos. Let's have a very brief look how it has been done. Accumulation of huge financial resources by oil companies made them very attractive for government 
and I would underline and also quasi-government intervention. Quasi-nationalization began from the most successful oil companies, Yukos. Here you can see that Yukos was able to almost double its output within five years, not in 10 years that has been proposed by the president of Russia, not by, not in eight years that it has been done in Azerbaijan already, not in seven years, uh, not in seven years ha has, has been done in Azerbaijan, not in eight years that is done in Kazakhstan, but in five years. Having launched the assault on Yukos, the authorities by the end of year 2004 have essentially destroyed the most effective, most transparent, and fastest growing company in the country. Its most valuable and most effective part, Yugans Nefty Gas, has been handed over to the state-owned company Rosneft. What has happened with this company as a result of this forced transfer to Rosneft? Yugans Nefty Gas, this is the pearl of Russia's oil industry, so its output collapsed after four years of unprecedented growth within private company Yukos. That time, Yugans Nefty Gas increased its output 50 to 20 percent annually, contributing to the so-called little Russian economic miracle in oil industry that actually helped to sustain uh, oil prices uh, for some particular period of time. And Russia was able to contribute uh, more than any other country at that time to more supply of oil to the world, the world markets. The first results, uh, first financial results of Yugans Nefty Gas activity under state management became triumph of ineffectiveness and incompetence. Here you can see these financial results. I would attract your attention either to data in current prices or in constant prices. On your right, right hand you can see that sales of this best company uh, in the country fell by 17% in constant prices and costs grew by more than 30% within one year. It's certainly the achievement that was to be included in the books, book of records. The transfer of Yugas gas from Yukos to Rosneft neither increased nor even sustained the combined output of these two companies. In reality, it reduced the combined output, as you can see from mid-year 2004. In the response to the government assault, private investments in the oil sector in year 2004 fell by more than 20%. And growth in Russia's oil output fell from 12% in July year 2003 to 0.9% in August year 2005. Since then, it has recovered slightly, but still is about 2% uh, compared to 12% only two and a half years ago. The Russian authorities' uh, attitude towards domestic politics and civil society can best be described as Zimbabwean disease. Establishing total control of executive power of a public and social life that leading to destruction of virtually all non-state political and economic institutions of modern civilized society. Legislative and judicial powers, political parties, regions power, businesses, mass media, injurer, religious organizations. Recently, that was detected at the beginning of the talk about looking into internet with great attention.
just number of indicators that have been produced have been produced by the Freedom House International Organization measuring different political institutions and civil civil society institutions in, Ru in Russia over the last several years. There you can see very clear deterioration in all, without any exception, institutions in Russia. Here's deterioration in electoral process index in Russia, in judicial framework and independence index for Russia, in civil society index in Russia, in independent media index in Russia, in governance index in Russia. Public demand for independent analysis, non-government mass media, opposition politics is falling fast and sharply. Their financial support by the private business is quickly drying up as a surety of the civil society. Government propaganda saw return of the Cold War syndromes. Today, enemies of people include liberals, business people, whom now, who are called now oligarchs, Westerners, potential orange forces, and whoever who does not follow the party line. In preparation to the, actually, uh, the party line, recently we have a very impressive uh, contribution of one of the ideologues of this kind, who actually openly proclaimed necessity to establishing actually the monopoly one party. In preparation to the next round of parliamentary and presidential elections, the authorities are de facto encouraging activity of nationalistic groups and simultaneously creating officious anti-fascist movement. We certainly Mr. Zhirinovsky's party and the like as its very active participants. Using anti-fascist demagogy as a pretext, they attack any dissenting voices in the society. To frighten political and intellectual opponents, the state of fear has been created. For those who are not feared, a number of different instruments and tactics are applied. Provocations, harassments, beating, hostage-taking, for Russian citizens, expulsions for foreigners, non-granting visas, expulsions too. The latest decisions in anti-terrorist act taking basic personal liberties away from Russian citizens, the law that has been adopted last week. So to see how this can be compared in the international context, we can look on Zimbabwe and the Zimbabwean disease. What is striking, it's a similarity between the trends of political freedoms in Zimbabwe and in Russia, with only one feature. Degradation of political freedoms in Russia happens to be faster than in Zimbabwe. By the dynamics of political freedom index in 91 year 2005, Russia has demonstrated one of the worst performances in the former USSR. While Baltic countries gradually increasing their political freedoms, countries GUM, Georgia, Ukraine, and Moldova are trying to sustain their levels of political freedoms. And CAS 8 means uh, Central Asian countries, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and Belarus are falling down. Russia is falling down too, but falling much faster than CIS 8 on average. 
By changes in political freedom index in Yetta Southern 5, Russia and Ukraine occupy polar positions. You can see on your left hand uh, the blue color uh, bar is Ukraine that substantially increased its political freedom index in the last year and the year after the Orange Revolution. And on the other uh, part, on the right hand, you can see red color bar Russia with the worst performance with the uh, largest degradation of political freedoms in the last year. Perhaps it is not a very big surprise that on so many issues, Russia and Ukraine happen to be on a very different sides, and so many conflicts have arised over the last short period of time. The Russian state, as a result of all these developments, has been transformed into what I would call corporate state. There are several features that I would like to mention. Corporate state means ownership of the Russian state by the corporation. Use of the Russian state bodies, including security forces, tax services, courts, and all other bodies, in the interest not of the state, not of the nation, but of the corporation. Destruction of the rule of law, absence of identical rules applied to citizens or economic agents. Many word of the corporation is paratrooping its member or members, Russian or foreigner, doesn't matter, into state-owned company. Privatization of profits and nationalization of costs for such so-called state-owned companies. PPP, public-private private partnership. In the Russian context, it means coercion of private business to fulfill orders from the corporation and bear the costs. Selectiveness, taken as absolute priority and absolute principle. An ideology that it can be coined by several people as Nazism, which can, can be translated as our ownism. Sorry if it is not good, neither in Russian nor in English. The so-called enlarged governments, here a citation that I'd like to use here, EDS, federal government plus regional governors, must work like one corporation. It's a citation from the current Russian authorities. And another from James Madison. The accumulation of powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Political process in the country became concentrated over distribution and redistribution of monopoly rents and creation of their new sources, not over formation of favorable conditions for creation of value added. Vibrant politics is developing into rent-seeking politics. Not only political elites, but the whole Russian society is evolving into a rent-seeking society, where weak and effective people are demanding subsidies and protectionism and usually receive it, and the most talented, educated, and entrepreneurial people are looking for possibilities to distribute and redistribute rent. National labor ethics on Mars is evolving in a rent-seeking ethics. Grand populism, now in the form of the so-called national projects, has arrived. Rent-seeking behavior becomes, becomes incredibly attractive not only for today's political and economic elites, but also for future generations. 
Here you can see results of the opinion polls conducted by uh, FORM in Russia over the last nine years. The, it demonstrates clearly changes in preferences of future jobs by Russian youth. Preferences to be in private business and management fell from 78 percent in 1997 during economic crisis to 42 percent last year. At the same time, preference to be in government and administrations and law grew from 30 percent to 51. Instead of producing value added, it is much more interesting to redistribute and consume it. Foreign policy of the current Russian authorities can best be described as Saudi disease, use of energy weaponry in international relations. Backed by unstoppable influx of financial resources into the country, regardless of quality of government policy and in reality rewarding irresponsibility and interventionism, Russia's authorities' foreign policy becomes more and more arrogant and aggressive. Energy warfare has been recently used against democracy-oriented Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia. At the same time, Russian authorities are positioning themselves in an actual ally of political regimes in Belarus, Uzbekistan, Iran, Syria, Venezuela, and of such political forces like Palestinian Hamas. At the same time, government-controlled media launch anti-European, anti-American, and in general, anti-Western hysteria. What is to expect? We can use the same approach, some historical analogies. We know the results which brought the so-called Dutch disease. Fall in GDP per capita in the Netherlands as a, for example, percentage of the U.S. during this period of the Dutch disease. Argentinian disease. Dramatic fall in GDP per capita in Argentina from 53% as a share of U.S. indicator to roughly 25%. Venezuelan disease fall from 80% in 57-58 to less than 20% now. Zimbabwean disease from slightly less than 10% of the U.S. level to about 4% now. But it's so looks like so bad and so, but is it really full picture? What about economic growth, consumption growth, investment growth, stock market growth, foreign exchange reserves growth? Well, it is fictitious. No, certainly not. It, all this growth is completely real. And number can impress many people, and actually they did impress. Since 98, GDP in dollar terms grew almost fivefold. Money income of population grew 4.5 times. Volume of consumption market in dollar terms grew fourfold. Foreign exchange reserves, including stabilization fund, grew 23-fold, 23 times. This is really impressive. And since December 99, Russian stock market grew tenfold. So this should be something wrong. Either all this debate about economic and political freedom not correct, or this data incorrect. It cannot be at the same time, at least as we have seen uh, in the past in many other countries. Or maybe exactly the policy of destruction of political economic freedoms is the best policy to achieve 
wonderful economic results. No, we know that it is not true. These results happened almost exclusively due to unprecedented terms of trade change, not so much the contribution of policies of the Russian authorities, and especially in the last two periods that we have mentioned earlier. GDP in dollar terms grew almost fivefold, but in real terms by only 58%. Private consumption in dollar terms grew more than four times, but in real terms by only 63%. Russia's economy grew in last year by 48%, but volume of imports surged more than four times. Even Russian stock market is driven primarily by world energy prices, not by domestic economic policies. So, having seen all these results, we have to distinguish between those factors that have contributed positively and that have contributed negatively to this growth. It means that unlike terms of trade change, domestic policies contribute negatively into economic performance. And mainstream economic policy of year 2000, year 2003 is being transformed in rent-seeking policy. Quality of economic policy has sharply deteriorated, and you can see this policy measured as real GDP growth rate adjusted for windfall profit received. Even the 1999 and year 2000 policy has contributed positively, seriously positively to economic performance, not in the last two years. Last year, it has actually subtracted almost 10 percentage points of GDP. FDI as a share of GDP fell sharply, especially in non-fuel sector, from roughly 1.6% of GDP to 0.6% of GDP. Capital flight over the last five years increased more than fivefold, from 10 billion US dollars in year 2001 to more than 53 billion US dollars in year 2005. Actual economic growth fell compared to potential ones. Here you can see comparisons between actual and potential GDP growth due to terms of trade change. From the first, very first glance, Russian economic growth looks very impressive, though not so impressive compared to China and India. But what is more important, it is by far lower than in other oil exporting countries during periods of high oil prices. And you can see that the other countries like United Arab Emirates, Iraq, Syria, Oman, Libya, Azerbaijan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iran, Algeria, Kazakhstan, all of them having much higher GDP growth than Russia today, on average roughly twice as higher. And it means that the current economic policy is destructing the economic growth from uh, Russia. So we're coming back to these diseases which called Darwin Sazimus. Some time ago, President of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, has been approached with a question how he would react to assertion that Russia policy introduced in Russia is called Venezuelan disease. Mr. Chavez protested and said, no, we've never done anything like they have done to the, their company, Yukos. So it is not Venezuelan disease, it is a Russian disease. Another point that is, and maybe the last point here, which is actually the big debate here in Washington, 
as I was able to uh, see here, observe over the last several days. Russia as a member of G8. And a lot of recommendations came now from different angles of political spectrum what to do about that. Let's look at numbers, not on opinions. GDP per capita by PPP in constant prices in G8 countries. For G7 average, it is 31,000 US dollars. In Russia, it is three times lower. It's maybe not a bit. Country can grow, and in some period can close the gap and maybe at some point reach the level of G7 countries. And that is why it is very important to look into the GDP growth, real GDP growth rates in those countries. And from the very first glance, it looks like that's exactly what is going on. Russia's economic performance over the last five years was roughly three and a half times higher than on average for G7 countries. But we remember that in this growth, huge contribution of terms of trade change, of higher oil prices and higher other export prices and lower input prices. Let's do a little exercise and adjust economic growth to terms of trade change. And we can have real GDP growth rates in G8 countries adjusted for financial profit receipts for G7 countries and for Russia. Picture becomes slightly different. While G7 on average experiencing 2.2 percentage annual growth rates, Russia it will not take into account huge influ influx of foreign exchange into the country, it experiences economic decline. And instead of budget surplus that we are actually can be proud of, we having actually budget deficit as that has been uh, demonstrated by a number of recent IMF uh, papers. Look at CPE, CPI, uh, inflation in G8 countries. In G7 average it's 1.8. In Russia it's almost 15% over the last several years. <coughs> but whatever important economic indicators, political indicators are not less important. Each statement of G8 countries from each summit Start with the words, we are the most developed democracies of the world. Let's look like how it looks like all those democracies without exception. Here, political rights index in G8 countries, once again, borrowed from Freedom House. And you can see how those countries compared. Civil liberty index. Political freedom index. Sir, we are in different categories <coughs> to a great regret. Uh, while all G7 countries are politically free countries, Russia was degradating in politically non-free country that happened last year. And it is even more important, not the absolute level, but the changes. The starting level could be lower, but what is important, the direction of movement. And here, changes in political freedom index in G8 countries in the last 15 years, in G7 countries and in Russia. It does not look like we are in the same category. If we are not there, 
where are we? Another G8? Which one? Just have a look. Another G8 by negative GDP growth it will use for Russia the real growth adjusted for terms of trade change. And here the company would be slightly different from what we have seen before. Haiti, Central African Republic, Seychelles, Cote d'Ivoire, Dominica, Solomon Islands, and Zimbabwe. Another G8 in CIS by speed of degradation of political freedoms in the last 15 years. Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Russia, Tajikistan, and Belarus. Russia is not the champion in this group, but very close to it. In the year 2005, political freedom index in Russia fell lower than even in the, on average, OPEC countries. The only group of countries that experienced deterioration in political freedom index in late 80s and early 90s. As for all other groups of countries, they actually improving their indices of political freedom. By changes in political freedom index over the last 15 years, Russia occupies 190th place in 193 countries of the world. And we can form another G8 in the world by speed of degradation of political freedom in the world in 91, year 2005. Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Solomon Islands, Gambia, Russia, Tajikistan, Belarus, and Nepal. Let me use the light's last citation that actually is very popular and actually uh, is liked by my wife. No matter how you will dress up the wolf, he will not become a grandmother. Also my favorite citation from my former boss. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Andre. We have time for questions now. If you have a question, raise your hand, wait for the microphone, and then identify yourself and uh, your affiliation and who you're asking the question to. Let's take the first question up here in front, uh, right here. She's bringing the microphone. Bring the microphone to, to her, please. Mr. Um, Ilarionov, uh, my name is Molly O'Neill. I'm with the State Department and uh, served in Moscow not too long ago and definitely agree with you about much of what you've reported. I only wanted to ask you one thing, and that is uh, your picture of the political situation seems so hopeless that I just wondered if you would comment on whether you see any prospect for any uh, how to say reversal of fortune or at least some gains by liberal-minded political uh, people such as, well, for example, former Prime Minister Kasyanov or, or you know, the uh, combined uh, SPS and Yablaka or any other. Do you see any way forward that might bring a, a reversal of the current developments, the recent developments? Thank you for this question. Um, I have to admit I am not a political analyst and I tried uh, almost all my life to abstain from any comments on politics. And the only reason that I did it and started start to do it uh, rel relatively recently uh, because I think that it is absolutely impossible uh, to talk about economic freedom and to, uh, to, to have civiliz civilized country 
when political freedom is destroyed completely. So I cannot comment on those issues, certainly, uh, that is in the center of your attention, of attention of many other people. I do have my personal view about that, uh, but since I am not a specialist in this area, I would, at least at the moment, I would reserve it to myself. Take a question in the back there. And certainly I, uh, what, certainly I know that in historical perspective, Russia certainly uh, will be free country, politically and economically. No doubt about this. But it's not clear when and how. But the direction is absolutely clear. Unfortunately, we can be for some time there. And unfortunately, we as well, not, not only we, but some other else, perhaps have to pay some price for that. But in historical perspective, Russia will be free. I'm Julian Josephson, a local science writer here in the Washington area. What I want to ask you, with a <coughs> corporatist um, state being developed and um, like that, and of course management of these companies will deteriorate or will come essentially under one <coughs> superior group. Do you see that also causing degradation of the environment and um, <coughs> a reversal of such environmental gains, you know, environmental cleanup gains that Russia has already made in the earlier years after the fall of the Soviet Union? Uh, perhaps this is also areas not of uh, my great expertise, I have to admit. Uh, nevertheless, uh, as we have learned uh, from the experience of many countries around the world, as well as from the Russian experience, uh, the, usually we do see this uh, regularity, I would say, almost a lore. The more developed nations usually, usually uh, do have much better environment than the less developed nations. Uh, they can spend more on environmental protection. They use resources much more effectively. Uh, the uh, higher level of economic development is an alienable element of much more reasonable uh, behavior and governance both in the government sector and the, as well as in the private sector. So that is why the tool and the instrument to have much better environment is also economic freedom and political freedom. It cannot be done overnight, it's clearly. But in the medium to long-term perspective, it is clearly will lead to exactly the same results as it led in the United States, in Europe, and in many other countries. Yes, we'll take a um, question right there. Take a question right there, please. Good afternoon. I'm Ken Hoppala. Uh, from your presentation, it seems to be a great in increase in economic power with the rise in oil prices. What would you see if we saw a future collapse in oil prices, say, to $30 a barrel? Um, first of all, I think it is unavoidable, sooner or later. Uh, looking at the historical uh, perspective, certainly, uh, this uh, deviation in long-term trend in oil prices is very, very, very exceptional. 
uh, not so much by size, but the some kind of uh, the time. So just for more than uh, seven years uh, already. Um, certainly, there is some explanation to this deviation, and the mayor. The most important uh, explanation uh, actually is rooted into the existence of the worldwide semi-monopoly on the best uh, sources of energy supply in name of OPEC and some other countries that have nationalized their oil resources and that have nationalized their oil infrastructure. And actually led to substantial decline in their economic performance and actually to three decades economic catastrophe in those countries. So sooner or later uh, it will change. It will change in those countries and it will change in other countries that would prefer sooner or later not to pay such a high price, such a monopoly rent uh, to those countries and sooner or later oil prices uh, would fall. And that time, once again, sooner or later, Russia as well as some other countries would need to change their policies. I hope that can be done even not waiting until fall in oil prices. But if it will not be done before, it will certainly be done after that. We'll take a question right here in the front. Pedro Borelli from BBMV Consulting. Can you explain to us the decision-making process within the group in the government that you were in, within the Kremlin? Uh, obviously, it does not seem like somebody holding your views. And it was clear to us, observing from the outside, that you were always taking positions that did not seem to be particularly popular with the government that was actually moving the direction that you showed us was moving. Can you describe a little bit what the environment within the Kremlin was and how you survived for so long uh, espousing some of the views that you're espousing? Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> Can you seriously think that I will describe it? <laughs> I would reserve it to my memoirs. <laughs> Okay. Take a question right there. Yeah. Uh, my name is Igor Zivilev. I'm with RIA Novosti, Russian News and Information Agency. Uh, in your broad international comparisons, uh, you never refer to the experience of Japan in the 50s with its industrial policies. Uh, and later, South Korea and Taiwan tried to do something similar in the 60s and in the 70s. And later, China and then Vietnam tried to do something similar. And what you call a corporate state uh, may be something similar to experiences of those countries. So uh, what are the common features and what are the differences between the Russian uh, path of development and those countries I just mentioned in those years I mentioned? Thank you. Uh, thank you for your question. It's actually quite regularly raised questions, especially in Russia, um, and perhaps due to maybe um, the fact that uh, some publications on Japan, South Korea, and some other countries have been taken as face value, and especially publications about so-called industrial policies. 
Um, certainly, it's not the place here to some kind of to engage in this discussion, but uh, just uh, in brief, I have to say that uh, those countries uh, have proclaimed industrial policy, but hardly implemented it. While uh, they were able to uh, pursue, from my point of view, rather liberal economic policy, uh, rather free market economic policy, uh, not be, not being engaged in mass uh, massive redistribution of economic wealth from economic outsiders, uh, or from some kind of from economic champions or to economic outsiders. Uh, in none of those countries, uh, the share of government expenditures to GDP during period of fast economic growth and during period of economic miracles uh, almost never exceeded 20% of GDP. Uh, so that is why there was no actually much room for industrial policies in those countries. And certainly it's not the case in Russia where the resources about 40% of GDP and a lot that is not recorded as through so-called PPP, through government monopolies and so on. So th those, uh, that group of countries and Russia are occupying absolutely different positions in any economic classifications by economic policy types. So that's just, uh, they are completely incomparable. And the same story about the corporatist states. Uh, corporatist states, this term has been used widely and different countries with different regimes and different policies have been called uh, as corporatist states. Uh, that is why I try to distinguish from the uh, terms that have been used towards other countries with um, the description that I put forward uh, in one of the slides explaining what I understand by corporate states. It's not the country in the economy which we can find some corporations. No. Almost in each country we can find corporations by legal status or by any other definition. What actually makes Russia different and really deeply different from at least, if not all, but certainly many countries in the world, that here we do have not only corporations in the economy, we have corporations that owns the government apparatus. And actually, we can mention not too many cases where government apparatus happen to be in ownership of some particular corporation, not competing gangs, not in hands of some particular person, even if it's his or her charismatic person, but in the hands of corporation. And that's the difference. So I would just once again attract your attention to this definition and invite you to look around to find other examples of such corporate estates today or maybe in the past. Take a question up front, please. Uh, Nick Perry, Foreign Policy Forum. What effect will Russia's population decline have on the economy in the long term? Uh, will it create labor shortages, uh, higher wages, uh, demands for technological innovation, or, or will it lead to a, a decline? Uh, first of all, certainly uh, population decline would uh, 
is a very negative factor, and certainly it cannot contribute positively. Uh, the problem with these factors, as well as with many other factors, that uh, however damaging such contribution could be, in face of, and how it can be measured, it could be, okay, half a percentage points of labor force annually, maybe slightly more in the worst cases. But if the country receives annually 15% of GDP as windfall profit as a result of doing nothing or doing some wrong things, actually what is important that in minds of those who are taking decisions, all other factors are not very, very important. And that's, that's a very serious fact actually, it's some kind of drug addiction that actually paralyzed the ability to think about today and about tomorrow and day after tomorrow. We'll take a question right there. Dr. Ilyarna, thank you very much. It's been a very enjoyable presentation. I am Carol Hamblin and I am a business consultant. I've done business development work throughout Russia to the Far East. Uh, my question is more grassroots. Are you able to speak to the general Russian citizen, their support of the current government, their desires for political freedoms, their desires to expand democratic freedoms? Thank you. What do you mean saying being able? Uh, I put that differently. Is the average Russian citizen interested in growing their political freedoms? Do they understand democracy? Are they interested in expanding their democratic freedoms? Can we ask the same question to average American citizen? <laughs> there are different citizens. Some are very interested, some so-so, some are busy doing different things. So it's the same in Russia. Some people are very interested, uh, actually, and they're interested not only in political freedom, some people are interested in politics, and also not completely sharing my views or some other views, and we are in lively debate with those people, and I think it's normal. Uh, as if you mean uh, whether any interest to uh, the presentation that, or type of presentation that you uh, we just uh, we've seen right now. Um, yes, there is a very serious interest, and some part of this presentation, mostly not full, but some part of this presentation has been uh, given to different Russian audience um, in different places, uh, and people uh, actually received it as a great interest. We have time for at least one or two uh, more questions. We'll take one up front here. Thank you. Toby Gotti, you can go. Hi, Andre. Um, I have a question about your alternate G8 in effect. In every one of those cases, it's a class of people that wins, although the country may lose, as you've just presented Russia as basically the loser. But if you look beyond GDP increases, which everyone thinks of as positive, who in Russia wins? Individuals, groups, classes? Uh, who keeps the system going uh, and thinks of it 
as the accomplishments as positive. Is it just a small group of people, or is it a, a, a layer of society, or different sectors? And my second question, is there any sector in the economy that can stay out of the corporate state? Consumer goods, um, any sector. As for your first question, I believe it is a topic of number of studies in area of political science for uh, many years to come. And I will be willing to look into this uh, and, and I'll, um, do this analysis. Who is actually uh, um, gaining and who is actually supporting this process? Certainly we know that there is uh, some kind of government apparatus and those who are working there. And actually many of people who do work uh, in the government are absolutely honest professionals and they are doing what they think they should do as best as possible. So uh, some of them reluctantly, uh, some think that, okay, the best way they can contribute, the, the, the best that can contribute to, into Russia's uh, development is just to do well their duties. Um, but uh, as for other, as you think, layers of societies, in a situation where, as I have mentioned already, are receiving up to 15% of GDP as windfall profit, and in a situation where these profit and substantial portion of these profits can be distributed and redistributed in society, with such amount of money, you can easily appease almost anyone. Because it's not so much words, but it is real money. It is real money supported and backed by huge inflow of inputs, of all kinds of inputs, consumer goods, uh, investment goods, and also huge rise in the so-called uh, non-tradable sector in Russia, once again, due to such a favorable external conditions, due to inflow of such resources. So that is why even many people, or some, in some layers, people not, are not extremely happy, I would put in such a mild way with what is going on in political area there is no big reason for them to actually to take any risk to do anything serious against this because as economists could say what would be the rate of return of the alternative behavior and does not look like at least in a short term perspective extremely attractive and long term perspective it is quite difficult to bring long-term perspective analysis even in the United States, among, among United States populations in some cases. So it's just people almost everywhere, very similar. We have time for one more question, and we'll take it right up here, please. Ron Davis from the State Department. Um, at this point, uh, who would you say are uh, President Putin's top uh, advisors on economic policy, even if they are not economists? <laughs> Certainly I can say, but 
I'm not sure that I have this right. We'll wait for the memoirs on that one as well, I suppose. I want to thank all of you for joining us today and, and thank Andre for thank joining you. us. And, and thank please you. thank him. We have a reception upstairs.